good day and welcome to another episode of the Raw Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Grace. My guest today is Pedro Banman. He's an intentional, thought-provoking leader in the truest sense of the word, meaning he leads by example. His wise questions, well-formulated ideas, and expressions discussed through this long episode kept me pondering for weeks. We traverse various topics centering around the concept of how to shift this world for the better for all beings. There are so many juicy nuggets of wisdom sprinkled through this episode, and I'm really excited to share it with you all. So please welcome Pedro Banman. Awesome. Yeah. Well, hello, Pedro, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Christine. Um, so nice to see your face again. And uh, yeah, nice to sit down with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because um, you ask such amazing thought provoking questions on Facebook and always open up such an amazing dialogue. And it's exactly what I'm looking for mm. um, on this podcast is this type of conversation. Um, so I'm just going to give everyone a kind of brief overview of how I met Pedro. Um, we were at the Inshallah Festival in Southern Alberta, and right. um, you approached me and Jesse, my uh, hubby man person, <laughs> and we were with like some other people, but we didn't really know them. We were all sitting around a fire, and you approached us, and basically you just honored <clears throat> Jesse with such a pure vision of like, like seeing him, like, and you saw him so clearly. And I think, to be honest with you, um, I think it was one of the first times he'd ever been seen so purely by another male figure, another person. Um, and it, it literally like changed his life. Like that, that moment, that conversation. Um, and at some point maybe, We'll have all three of us on the podcast. I was thinking about that this morning, actually having all three of us one time to have a big discussion would be amazing too. Yes. And then within that conversation, um, other people were talking and one of the biggest things that came about that conversation that Jesse and I literally bring into everyday life now is um, how much we in society, like it's like a, a cultural thing, say the word you when we really mean I. So like specifically in an opinion, we'll be saying, yeah, and you do this and you do this and you do this, or you think, and instead of we or I think, um, and it's this whole projection on out external without like the self-responsibility piece. Um, and I actually wondered if you just wanted to tell me a bit more about when you started to realize that and how you realized that. Yeah, sure. Well, um, it certainly wasn't a personal epiphany. Um, I attended a men's circle for uh, some time before that. And uh, one of the first rules of etiquette that I learned in there pretty quick is that we don't say you, uh, we say I. Um, and uh, I quickly realized just how that, that changes the whole tone of a conversation in that um, I'm, taking, I'm taking responsibility for what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm owning my ideas. Mm -hmm. If I say, well, you know how you do this when you do that. It's like, well, you may or may not do that. That's what I do. So mm -hmm. it's unfair for me to, um, say you or we or us. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of the origin of it. And, um, it didn't, it didn't take long for me to start practicing that, um, in my daily life. 
and to start getting frustrated um, hearing <laughs> hearing other people say you. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think I think the function is just is just ownership is just mm -hmm. uh, taking responsibility for our own beliefs and our own behaviors. Do you want to know? So an interesting place that I have found it shows up the most with Jesse is I'll be telling him a story about a conversation I had with somebody else. And then I'll personify him as if he's the person and I'll start saying, yeah. And then you said this and yeah, and, he, and he'll just pause me. He's like, she or he, and it's like, it's so crucial because otherwise, like, especially if I'm kind of working out a frustration of a conversation or just something and I'm kind of projecting it at him as if he's the one who said it, it like, then he has to like deal with the emotions of having like not actually said the thing that I'm projecting. And so it became just like this, like it almost got a little annoying in a relationship, except that it's been so beneficial for both of us. And I've actually like helped other friends of mine kind of start to do the same thing. And, and it, for me, it's actually more so um, when I'm telling a story about somebody else that I'll just like say like, yeah. And, and then, and then you said this or, and then, and it's when it's she or, or something else. And I just find that so interesting when what's actually happening. And I, cause he asked me, he's like, like, why do you do that? I'm like talking to the person in my mind. So I'm like saying you as if I'm talking to them but they're not there. Um, mm -hmm. And it's actually Jesse. And so, yeah, I've just, anyway, it, that's been such a, such a correction that in terms of like societal things that I think would benefit, like as a collective thing for us to work towards, that would be one that I would definitely say, um, say is what we should all work towards basically. But have you yeah. found it challenging? Um, sure. I mean, the, there was an initial transition period that took some adjusting and mm -hmm. it, it took me a long time to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Um, and being corrected by men in the men's group, uh, repeatedly mm -hmm. and, um, and really being astounded at, uh, how frequent it was for me. Um, but you know, after, after a time period, I think, uh, it just, it just becomes a part of how we speak. Right. Um, and I think it's, I think it's just one example of, a million ways that uh, we tend to defer responsibility in a conversation or to just or, or to weasel ourselves out of a position um, there, we have a lot of tactics in our language and a lot of um, just tendencies to to avoid disagreement and to to not speak truthfully and mm -hmm. and the I and the you thing I think I think is just one example of that. Yeah. Do you have another example you can think of that like this? Um, let's see what comes to mind. Um, I mean, I, I would say just, I, I, one of the things that I see a lot, it's not so much a, a, a word replacement, but it's just this, when two people get to a point in a conversation where there's clearly a disagreement, mm -hmm. um, there's just some kind of compensatory remark or made to just close the conversation. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, well, the world's a, the world's a tough place or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, we, we just have these little catchphrases that, that um, allow us to escape from going deeper. Right. And um, 
and I think it's not always the case that um, that we need to go deeper, but mm -hmm. um, more frequently would be great, I think. I totally agree. It's interesting because I also think I've, I've ha had conversations too where I've literally just like said to somebody, I, I understand you, I just don't agree. And they can't take that. Like I'm owning, I don't agree with you. I can just not agree, but it's like they they then can't, or it seems in that moment that they get really frustrated because I'm not changing my mind and agreeing with them. When I think sometimes just allowing people, like it's like the, we agree to disagree. Like that's another one mm -hmm. of those kind of catchphrases, but that's actually when I don't mind because it is sometimes just a way to smooth the conversation that isn't so like, oh, well, the world is just such a magical place or, or whatever. It's like, we can agree to disagree. At least we agree there. And it kind of lands in a good way. But I find sometimes even staying in disagreement nowadays is just like so frustrating for people when that's oh, like yeah. life. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Disagreement. Yeah, it's uh, exactly. It's um, there's no way that we're all going to have the same idea about everything. No. Um, yeah, it's uh, there's 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 certain things that uh, that we're just uncomfortable with, and I don't know if it's as a species or if it's as a society. Mm. Um, it's also the other thing that comes to mind is like this idea of not knowing. Mm -hmm. um, when a subject gets raised, it's like to say I don't know is is insufficient for so many people. Mm -hmm. When in fact, I think most of us don't really know anything about most things mm -hmm. um we can't contain that kind of data in our brains um so yeah just getting comfortable with um the concept of you know i really don't know and and that's all i got um mm -hmm. so yeah all these little functions of speech yeah i'm i'm actually just curious in this moment as somebody i know you ask a lot of questions so i'm sure when you're around other people you also are a person who asks a lot of questions it's kind of how i am too um and i've had it a few times that people have just like looked at me and been like you just want to be right christine when all i'm doing i'm not even posing my own they haven't asked me for my actual opinion I'm just asking deeper and deeper questions to get them to think. And I've, I, and I've honestly reflected on it a few times being like, is it that I actually want to be right? But I was like, well, I'm not posing my opinion. So what am I right about for one? But two, I think it gets to that place where, where saying I don't know is hard for them or they are feeling maybe like I'm attacking their idea. And that's something I've started to try to reflect on that I'm not just attacking it, but just trying to go deeper. But is that something you've also struggled or encountered or not? Oh, for sure. Yeah, um, okay. And I think part of what I've come to is just that um, I don't need to go deeper with everybody. Yeah. And in fact, I think, I think pushing for that um, actually makes a lot of people feel attacked and it actually um, compromises the relationship. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I really try to be, dis I mean, I always push, but I, d I'm getting better at my discernment in, is this worth pursuing? Is this worth pushing for? Um, because at the end of the day, it's usually the relationship I feel that's more important. And, um, I don't need to coerce some belief out of someone or push them into a corner and tell them to speak their truth. Um, and let's figure this out. Um, I feel less and less compelled to do that these days, um, though I can still have that tendency. 
I totally understand. It's a work in progress. I find for myself, like sometimes, um, sometimes it actually comes down to capacity for me to be able to catch myself and not push the conversation. It's so easy for me to push it that not pushing it actually takes more work. Um, and so that's actually been an interesting thing, reflection for me personally, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to just go through some of the questions that you basically have been posing on Facebook. I, I love how, I love how you show up on Facebook personally. I think it's amazing that you're open to dialogue the way you kind of, um, you're open to all convert, all perspectives. And when people get a little angry, the way that you handle it, I find is also so, um, diffusing, like you don't really seem to make people too fired up, even though you're asking really, really thought provoking questions. So I found, I personally found that really inspiring. Um, and so the one I'm going to start with is that you asked, what have you changed your mind about lately? And so I'm going to ask you that question and then we can go to my answer. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Uh, just give me a few seconds to think about for that. For sure. For sure. Um, hmm. Well, uh, yeah, here's one that kind of just comes to mind. Um, so I visited my sister last night. I went to her house mm -hmm. for dinner. Um, and we've been really close for many years. Um, we were born 11 months apart. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we know each other really well. And um, we both have this deep want for the other to live a great life. Um, and so for years I've, I've felt this urgency to tell my siblings how they need to conduct themselves in the world <laughs> and and they've felt a similar urgency mm -hmm. um and so something i've changed my mind about which actually kind of ties back into what we were speaking about is just that this relationship is more important than what i how i think you should live mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's not my, it's not my civic duty to, to compel you to live in accordance with what I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, and so realizing that is difficult, um, because I think there's this control piece for me that, um, that I need to let go of. And, um, having kids, I imagine that, um, there'll, there'll be some of that as well. Um, if not more so me being the parent and, you know, loving them dearly. Um, yeah, I, I could give you something maybe a little more, uh, I don't think Trump is all bad. How about that? That's, that's a little more controversial. Cool. Um, I like both of those. So the family one, I'll actually, I totally relate to, um, cause that was actually a huge contention point with me and my family. There was a period of time when I was going through kind of a, a large healing for me. I had to figure out depression and figure out like a lot of stuff that had kind of gone wrong in my mind about how I perceived the world and all these kind of things. And then as I started to unravel that, it was like, I wanted to then help my family understand it all, mm. but they didn't go through the life I did. And, and like, I remember that was like a hard point for me with my, um, my older sister specifically, 
I thought that she would have understood me more and like what I had gone through in terms of like our family dynamics. Cause I thought it would have been more similar for her mm-hmm. and realizing, and I think there's like a quote I saw one day that just said like, every kid has a different parent. Like even within a family, every kid has a different parent. Um, And actually an even deeper quote than that is basically that the more different the parents are for the kids, the better the kids are, because that means that the parent parented the child based on what the child needs, not based on an idea that the parent has. Because like some parents who parent the children all the same way, um, the kids end up really similar. Whereas the more different the kids are, it's because the parents actually were able to change based on what the kids need. But that means that each children actually had a totally different experience and realizing that, and then realizing that like, um, people are free to make their own choices. And like, and I believe in that. And I like, I'm total like pro choice thing, but it was like, I was still pro choice but I was also like condemning the choices my family was making because they didn't align with my belief structure hmm. and having to realize exactly what you said that like, I want the best for them and the best for them is what they choose for themselves. Or not. Or not. Or, or they don't choose the best for themselves or they mm. make shitty decisions and they harm themselves and they die miserable. I mean, that's a possibility too. Fair, yeah. Um, but it's like a it's 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 like a relinquishing of control. I think that's the most helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, if I if I let go of you know trying to control you know let's say my sister's life and just she's gonna make the decision she's gonna make anyways. At least now I've been a person that's present in her life who can be there without judging her, regardless of the decisions that she's making. Right. Yeah, I don't think we always make the best decisions for ourselves. <laughs> no, I would actually agree with you. But mm, I might push back a little bit there because I think sometimes in a more spiritual sense and spirituality can have its have its downfalls, everything has its pros and cons. Um, the idea that we're all kind of choosing our life and the, and the lessons that we are learning through the choices we're making in a more divine way, everything is perfect. And so those choices, even though it may have sent them into like a quote unquote bad thing is also going to provide them all of the experience, hopefully to learn and change or not, or just continue on that path. But anyway, that gets into a totally different existential thing. For sure it does. Yeah. Um, So I'm actually going to come back to you saying that Trump isn't all bad because I happen to completely agree with you. Um, but I'm curious what, what brought you down that belief? Um, I think I have a decent level of discernment. Um, and so, and I have a lot of doubt, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a lot of skepticism. Um, and so if I hear, if I hear a a storyline that's really prominent or a lot of people are saying it, I, I naturally get suspicious. Um, and so, yeah, the Trump phenomenon is really interesting. Um, I mean, that's a whole subject to itself. But um, I was really disappointed when he was elected mm-hmm. um, president. Um, you know, overall, I think he's not a, a great person. I think he's mm-hmm. very self-serving. Um, but um, you look at things like 
the fact that, you know, he didn't start any new wars mm-hmm. um, is actually a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as far as domestic um, issues are concerned, I think he really stirred up the pot. Um, but the fact that um, he didn't initiate new wars, which led to deaths of, you know, thousands or millions of people um, is pretty great. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really easy to get focused on um, on domestic issues and forget that um, people in the Middle East are being killed by American forces um, at the order of the president um, because we don't live there. So it's easy to forget about those things. Um, and I just I just know that every human being is complicated and nuanced and. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, and I think I think there was a lot. Of, there was probably some honesty in his desire to make America great again. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, it's uh, what a study of of American politics and society to have to have that man in there. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a real opportunity for a wake up call and a reassessment of the the system at large. I totally agree. And to me, and this is a piece that people I have seen anyway on social media in the last few months or so, um, the reaction to having him come into presidency for the four years and wanting to vote him out and everything in this last election that I, I think it is also a good thing that he's no longer president. I think that that could be a benefit um, but the reaction to having someone kind of extreme as him in the far left extremities seem to kind of mirror the same tactics. And, and that's the thing that people don't really like to talk about because the left they think is all going for such good things, but when they're engaging in censorship and shaming and, um, just lots of things that I don't agree with that they kind of criticize Trump for doing. I found that so fascinating to see how they have this, this very kind of egomaniac political leader kind of bring out that egomaniac in a lot of people too. It like, and, and across the spectrum of thought, like it didn't just bring it out just on the right side, which some people think it did it it brought it out on the left as well like across the spectrum and i i found that to be really really interesting to see and i'm curious of your your view on that yeah i mean it's like it's like you know america's just it's been coasting along on its program for a long time and Mm -hmm. um trump is an interrupter Um, you know, it's Mm. like taking a psychedelic, it's like interrupting the program. It's like Mm. creating a disruption and anytime a disruption is created, um, whatever's below the surface is going to emerge. And so Trump was that disruption. And, um, and I think, I think he just accelerated a lot of what was already trending both on the left and the right, Mm -hmm. uh, which is this polarization and this, um, this fraying of the American fabric. Um, 
yeah so it's not that it's not that he generated all of the polarity but he certainly um accelerated it in the public sphere yeah i would totally agree and so that's kind of going to bring us to that to next piece um because you mentioned the polarization um that's a thing right now that i i um there's a period of time a few months ago when I was getting really, really worried about it. Like it was occupying a lot of my mind, how polarizing everything was getting. And I've started to kind of calm that down a little bit and just find a little bit more trust in the process that things have to go through. Um, but you did make a post and I'm going to try to sum it up as good I, as best I can um, on Facebook that basically kind of showed like right thought um, specifically it was after like the insurrection, that's what people are calling it, um, of the Capitol on, I think it was the 6th, January 6th that happened, um, where basically the moral justifications that people have on one side, the threat of morality, like this is kind of my understanding of it. The threat of morality doesn't stay consistent when it's their side, even though some of the tactics are the same, some of the verbiage is the same, some of the way that we even look at it, like, like mostly peaceful protests, like even, even that term mostly peaceful, it's like, well, if there's a, if 90% of it was peaceful, but 10% wasn't that 10% is still going to be a bigger deal because it's going to harm so many more people than the mostly peaceful. And so even just like terming it in certain ways, um, on one side, it was called for being like terrorism. I saw a thing, I got in a big argument on Facebook calling it terrorism. Whereas like the other side, the left that have been, there's been riots going on in Portland for seven months. That's um, a uh, like calling for almost like a revolution. So like one side's a revolution and one side's terrorism. And it's like, how can we, I just don't understand that, I guess. And like, how can we as a society be not trying to see the more whole picture of, of what's happening? Anyway, maybe you could give a better synopsis of kind of the, the thing I'm talking about, but, um, but I'm just curious where, I guess where your views lie in this, in all of like this kind of extreme polarization. Sure. Um, yeah. So just to kind of give a summary of that chart that I posted, yeah. um, basically it parallels the, the Black Lives Matter protests not, I shouldn't say parallels. It compares the Black Lives Matter protests to the Capitol Hill riots. And it just kind of compares both the left and the right reaction to both of those events. Yeah. And it's it's a simplest, it's a reductionist chart, but mm -hmm. I think it's it's pretty compelling in, in that, depending on what side of the political spectrum you land on, basically you feel the same about the other people's protests as they feel about yours. And you feel like yours is justified and theirs isn't. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, what that points to, it's, it's, and, 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 you know, whether one is justified or more is a separate conversation. And I just want to be really explicit about that. And, mm -hmm. you know, we could get into that, but just, mm -hmm. just insofar as the psychology that surrounds these events and surrounds and are determined by what side of the political spectrum you fall on, it's what it does is it paints us a picture of 
of the brain function that's happening in the background. And it's the same. Mm -hmm. It's the same. So what we're, what we're dealing with, it's, is less about um, the superficiality of um, what it is you're, you're crying out about and, and more to do with the lack of unification among people mm -hmm. because un, like unexamined psychology leads to tribalism. And um, I mean, the, the decline of American intellectualism, it's is tragic. I mean, there's brilliant people down there, for sure. But as far as the general population goes, it's, it's, it's really sad. There's a, there's a fundamentalism, there's a tribalism um, that's getting exaggerated on both sides. And psychologically, the function is the same on whatever mm -hmm. side of the spectrum that you land on. And so part of what I'm trying to do with these posts is just to point at the commonalities that exist here. Like, hey, hang on a second. Like mm -hmm. before you just go ahead and trash the other side and post a hundred memes about, you know, how they're all dysfunctional. Um, how, could you, how could you compare your own thinking patterns, your own beliefs um, to that of another person's? You know, how, how do you think your opinion might be shaped if you grew up on the other side of the country in a different socioeconomic circumstance? Um, so for me, that's, um, yeah, that's a topic that I'm really interested in is like, how do we, how do we create some sort of unification, um, especially in America? And, you know, I am so, even though I'm Canadian, I'm occupied with the American cultural trending yeah. because, um, I mean, they're a world superpower and because we're right next door and because they kind of set the precedent for Western culture around the world in so many ways. Um, so it's a big deal. Whatever happens down there is it's a big deal. It affects the entirety of the world. Um, and just as a little bit of a tangent on that, I think there's a lot of compelling evidence to suggest that a lot of the division that exists in America is actually foreign led. Mm -hmm. It's like the Russian troll factories. Yeah. It's like, how do you take down a society without going to war when there's international laws in place that prohibit war from happening you tear it apart from the inside yeah anyway no i totally agree with that so actually you saying that that's cool i'm glad i asked for your perspective on your post because um that makes sense as to why because what i ended up doing was answering with the psychological breakdown of what happens and you said thank you for that like for the psychological breakdown because i basically said what happens is people it's a commonality of humans to struggle to see an opposing view where they're coming from. It's just, it's a thing when we have our view, we have our set belief, we have our understanding as to why we have that set belief. It's hard for us without some work generally for, 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 yes, it would it'd be hard generally to specifically when things are so polarized and when things are so kind of heated in the climate that it is right now to look to see how someone might believe what they believe. And it takes work to do that because you have to be willing to set your belief aside for a second um, and ask that question of, hey, why is it that they believe that? And, um, and I think when you said like, it's kind of a lack of psychological assessment that is going on is because people 
generally, I don't think are going for psychological work, perhaps as much as I think would benefit a lot of people. Um, I did, I had to go for a few years of psychological work because I had, I had misbeliefs. I had a misunderstanding of the way that I was viewing the world. And in doing that, it taught me specifically how to, how to see something from a different point of view, how to not just get attached to the viewpoint that was just the easy one that my brain thought of and how to like kind of put that aside and ask like, well, like that's like coming to the people who did storm Capitol Hill. Like, let's just say that. What is it that drove them to do that? Instead of just condemning it, like, whoa, how dare they? If they were black people, they would have been blah, 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 blah. Like all the things I saw, it's like, okay, let's just like pause for a second. What is it happening in their system, in their belief structure that got it to the point that they wanted to storm Capitol Hill? And a lot of people say it's just white supremacy. I think that's a super reductionist way of looking at it um, because A, not everyone who did, who was there was white. So are we saying that now people of color have white supremacy as well? Is that is that a view we're gonna start saying? Um, and, and it's just, it's a lack of, well, it's an overreaction. I'm not even gonna say it's a lack. I think it's an overreaction that is also fueled by social media because social media very much are quick snippets that get our emotional system fired up and get us wanting to react to something in a way and then be right and have an opinion and be right. And I feel that because we also have social media that fuels a lot of these dialogues, um, it's just hitting our like limbic emotional system so strongly that, that to take the pause and step back to ask the question as to like, whoa, what is it that they truly believe? Um, I, I don't wanna say it's not possible because it is possible because there's people like like us who do that. Um, I just wonder how how to get, if it's maybe like a teaching that has to happen, like of like helping people learn how to slow their process down and how to take that pause, take a few breaths, because I, I've actually seen like in my own being, it fires up my nervous system. And I'll have to like notice that my nervous system is like, rah, and I have to be like, wait, 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 wait. Take a few breaths, allow myself to calm down and then reassess what I just saw or what I just wrote or what I, anything like that. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, what do you think yeah. the solution is, I guess? Well, that's, yeah, that's kind of where I want to take it next is like, it's, it's, it's really easy to point out um, what's wrong and what's mm -hmm. going badly. Um, I have a special knack for that. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think social media certainly accelerates polarization and uh, the decay of, of commonality between people. Um, I, I heard this interesting interview on CBC a couple of years ago. Um, they were interviewing this fellow saying like, how, how is Al-Qaeda ever going to fail? Because you've got an extremist group that has no centralized headquarters, that's just an ideology. Um, and its believers are willing to die and to, for the cause. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do you extinguish something like that? Um, and, um, and the fellow who was being interviewed basically said, well, um, historically, if you look at these kind of movements, um, 
people eventually become disillusioned with them because they promise too much and then under deliver. Mm. And so one of my hopes is that um, part of what we see, at least in the American cultural experiment, is that um, there, there, there will be a disillusionment that, that happens on both the right and the left. And so the left is going to look at their, uh, you know, at their agenda, what their agenda has been for so many years. And, and, you know, you, you elect people to, um, to, to carry out these missions um, for the cause. And they're, they're never going to, they're never going to do it completely. They're never going to do it fully. Yeah. And so it's it's a humbling that takes place. It's like, hang on. Okay, so what is realistic here? Um, because as the division grows, the promises get greater on both sides. And so um, you can only under deliver on an on an ideological belief for so long, I think, before the followers start to start to question mm -hmm. what's going on. And so what we need to take that place in you know, hopefully somewhere in the middle is, is people who have been practicing um, for a long time, like reason, rationality, compassion, um, and then who are specialists in whatever their field is, whether that's politics or, or science or medicine or whatever it is, we need, there's, there's good, we're going to need people there to fill the vacuum who are experienced that, that these dissolution followers can like maybe gather around um, and move forward with some s more meaningful form of unification mm -hmm. that includes people from both sides of the political spectrum. Um, so, so that's one of my hopes. Um, and, and I also think it could just get really nasty and that okay. shit could fall apart in a big way. Um, but, you know, we, we, we all have, when we're on Facebook, we all have a platform too, like, right? We all have a reach. Um, and so I think for the people who are thinking about these things, maybe a little bit, a little bit deeper, who find themselves, uh, you know, more centrist or more willing to see both sides of the equation is like to use that platform. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I think social media tends to like terrify a lot of reasonable people from speaking up yeah. because you're going to get jumped on. It's going to happen. And that's a really uncomfortable thing. Um, but to just hold that, just to be able to hold that space and just like poke at the edges of, of belief and of commonality, um, I think is important. You know, we all have an audience, so we can all have a bit of influence. Yeah. Oh man, I totally agree with that. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I'm obviously what I've started to do is just like speak up about the things that, um, I believe in. And then coming back to what, when you asked the question, what have you changed your mind about? Um, my answer was that, um, our move towards more and more socialism is something I wouldn't say I've changed, fully changed my mind about, um, it's kind of a wavering back and forth that always goes, but something that actually deeply, deeply happened for me this year. Um, and I studied politics in university for about two years. Um, I ended nice. up leaving um, for mainly because I snapped my arm in half, but um, I also needed to get out of politics. Um, but I did study it for a while. And one thing I hadn't actually really seen was such a, a 
basic breakdown of left thought and right thought. So I had studied politics, but more like the intricacies of it. And during the year, some year this year, I was looking at a PragerU um, little snippet and they basically broke down conservative thought and liberal thought. And one thing I found really fascinating um, was they basically said like liberals have a tendency to think in the collective of what is good for the collective and conservatives have a tendency to think in terms of the individual and that it's a responsibility of the individual to work towards their own goals and dreams. And in having that breakdown for me, um, I'd, I've always identified as a liberal. I've always not even liberal, more left-leaning. I've always voted more on the left-leaning side of politics. Um, I have a sister with a disability. I believe we need to support those around us better. It's not just this one life that I'm living. It's this life in conjunction with those around us. But with that breakdown, I also started to see um, how conservative I actually am in some ways as well. Like it really brought me to understand like how maybe more centrist I actually truly am because at a baseline level, this is my life. It's only my life. And I'm the only human in my life who can do anything with it. No one else can do anything with my life if I don't choose to do something with my life. So from that viewpoint, um, it just kind of took me on this whole discovery, I guess, this year. And I just started following, because I'd always been following more left-leaning people, more, more people I agreed with, quote unquote. And I actually started following more right-leaning people um, out of curiosity, because I was like, hang on, I've never really given this thought process more weight than, oh, they're just conservative. Um, and I think in doing that is also what brought me to seeing exactly what you said earlier, that Trump isn't all bad, because I started seeing the conservative side of the argument, the conservative side of the view of how to approach what life is. And life is, a, is individuals behaving collectively in society. Like that's, that's a very baseline of life. Um, and so... So with that, it just came, came my curiosity towards more and more and more socialism. And the thing that I guess I got, when I answered the question for you of like, what has changed your mind about that? I answered it that I'm kind of moving away from the idea we need to move towards more socialism. Um, because what I'm seeing coupled with this like move towards socialism is excessive censorship and controlling of ideas and an overt like, labeling of people like we're now putting people in these like you're gay you're straight you're black you're white you're all, like different you're a girl you're not a girl you're and it's it just like it's like we're we're humans we're all humans that have feminine and masculine tendencies and have different colors of skin and different flavors of being and the more i kind of see people pushing and pushing and pushing for socialism it has this tyrannical feel to it that I'm just like not for at all. If I and it and it really started to make me realize that an underlying value I personally hold is like freedom, just just freedom at the baseline level, freedom of choice, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of um, as much as possible, basically. 
without hurting other people. Like that's kind of how I would sum up my belief structure. And then you kind of commented and said, yes, but then what about democratic socialism? And so I wondered what, I wanted to start there as like, what specifically you mean by democratic socialism? Yeah, it's funny with all of these terms because um, these definitions of liberal and conservative and even democracy um, mm -hmm. evolve and change over time and matter in the historical context that they're in. Mm -hmm. and, and the geography matters too. Um, I pitched that out there because I look at the European model mm -hmm. of um, not all of Europe, but certainly some, um, you know, places like Sweden, mm -hmm. where they've created, there's this high tax system, you could call that socialism if you want. Mm -hmm. um, they're, I mean, they're a capitalist society. Um, but people, people, people's needs are met. There's a like the social safety net is huge. It's mm -hmm. like, if you need something, it's there. Um, you know, the average person is, um, is, is well-spoken, you know, has a pretty good understanding of their own society at least and of the world. And this is all relative to North Americans. So maybe that's a pretty low bar to compare to, but, um, it's, <laughs> it's, um, you know, you've, you've got a people with a competency, you know, people who are intelligent, who, who I think most people, I, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but most people understand that their system takes care of other people and they're okay with being taxed to a large percentage. Yeah. So for me, I, I look to that model just as like, how can we incorporate that into, into our politics at home? Like, how can we make sure that the most, basically that the most vulnerable people have their needs met, that they're not, um, they're not worried about a roof over their heads and clean water to drink and uh, whether or not they can see a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I look at that and I say, you know, how can we aspire towards something like that in Canada? I think here mm -hmm. in Canada, we're a young country. Um, we can afford to be sloppy because we've got such a huge landmass with so few people. We've got a lot of resources um, and we're just new and we're babbling our way through it. Um, and so it's like, we can afford to make some mistakes. And we've got this, you know, this kind of reputation of being peacekeepers, you know, whether that's true or not is another matter of discussion, mm -hmm. but we've got this reputation of being like, you know, a, a noble force in the world. Um, so there's a lot going for us, but I think there's a lot of, I think there's just a lot of like mistakes being made. It's like, we're in our, it's like we're in our toddler years and we're just, in a lot of ways, we're just thrashing about. I think we could afford to be way more self-sustainable with like the resources that, that we have. Um, yeah, just more, yeah, more cohesive, more cohesive across our political thought. Um, I think we have this tendency to follow in the footsteps of the states and, mm -hmm. and you know, the polarity thing is affecting us as well. Um, but anyways, that's kind of the long explanation of why I brought up democratic socialism. Awesome. Um, and I, I would actually perfectly like 100% agree with you. I think trying to model somewhat after Sweden, um, I would totally be for, I think some of what I have started to see as, um, I don't think it's an intentional misrepresentation that people have. I think it's just a misunderstanding is they cry for socialism while simultaneously condemning capitalism. And I'm going to try to break down why I think this is an incorrect way of looking at things. Um, 
because I've asked people, well, if you, if you condemn capitalism, what is the other economic, economic system that we could mm -hmm. work towards? And people are like, well, socialism. So then they're thinking that socialism should be like the end all be all answer. But if you have, so you democratic socialism is basically keeping a capitalist economy, free market. You can still create what you want in the world. You can still have way more freedoms within mm -hmm. a political system that taxes higher and has more social programs and stuff like that, that has a more socialist aspect to it that looks mm -hmm. after its people. And that's mm -hmm. how I, I love democratic socialism. I'd like to maybe even call it like capitalist socialism or social capitalism is another term I recently came across that I really liked personally. But I think for me, the, the, the bigger worry that I have is that people are wanting more and more socialism while also condemning capitalism, which means that literally then will equate to communism. Because in order to create that, to have a controlled social styled economy, to my understanding, and if someone like has a way cooler idea of an economy that beyond these ones that I understand, I'd love to have them on the podcast. Maybe you have a cooler idea, but it means higher regulation in the economy. It means that there becomes a more central power that gets to dictate what all beings kind of can and can't do. And that personally for me is just like straight up, not something I want to see happen. We've seen it, how it plays out in history. You just have to read history books of a centralized power. And generally speaking, it doesn't function the best as far as we've been able to tell. Um, we all know governments are corrupt. Like I don't, I don't know of a single government that's like, Hey, we're the best people ever. Um, people have an inherent desire, I think, to look after themselves first. Like it's, it's, we are, we have to be that way. Um, and in doing that, it creates a slight easily corruptibility within the system when we give a certain demographic of, of people too much power. So yeah, anyway, I'm curious of your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, well, I got a lot to say there, but awesome. um, the, yeah, something I just want to just want to speak to immediately is the, is the, I mean, it sounds to me like you want, you want a world where it's like freedoms are, are at the forefront of everything. And um and I think that's that's good in many ways. And I think that's led to the success of Western civilization, mm -hmm. largely is the, well, you could call it success or you could call it um, whatever, mm -hmm. exploitation mm -hmm. or conquest or whatever mm -hmm. it is, mm -hmm. um, is the emphasis on individual. Um, I'm, I'm scared of a free market moving into the future. Okay. Um, because the, what is trending right now in the world of uh, business terrifies me. Mm -hmm. A business is an entity without a conscience. It's run by people, but there's laws and mechanisms that govern how this, how this, how a corporation exists in the world and mm -hmm. the goal of the corporation is to make money mm -hmm. period and there's a lot of you know good little companies doing good little things maybe they throw some solar panels on the roof 
Um, you know, maybe they make their things at home and their little mom and pop shop. That's great. But the, conglo the conglomeration of power in the business world is killing us. Mm -hmm. It will kill us. Um, so if we, if we, I'm terrified of less regulations mm. on business, business will, that the bottom line for a business is profit, period. And so when the power is consolidated in these groups, they will do anything in their capacity to make money. They will push any law they can. They will you know, if pollution means more money, they will pollute as much as they're allowed. They mm. will exploit people by giving them the lowest wages possible. They will ship labor overseas where the conditions are horrific. Um, and so, so you've got, you've got an entity that is, um, by its nature, seeks to pay people the lowest wages possible, pollute as much as it possibly can pay back the least amount of taxes to society and the social well-being. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's producing meaningless shit, you know, then, then there's a, the environmental cost of that. Mm -hmm. And so we're moving into a, a world where we're really forced to reckon with each other and everyone, just as mm -hmm. populations explode, globalization. I mean, we're trading things all the time. Everyone's completely independent interdependent economically mm -hmm. um we it's like if we don't if the government doesn't have some kind of influence in in the world of business i think we're fucked because that's where power will, will consolidate if we if we if there's if there's nothing that can go toe to toe with business the power will consolidate there and we're seeing it already we're seeing companies get bigger and bigger and bigger and smaller companies getting swallowed up all the time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not for it. <laughs> it's hard. Um, Cause I, I agree with that. Like I agree with everything you said. And so, yeah. So we need, we need an economic system that incentivizes um, ingenuity um, that does uh, play upon you know, some degree of competition between people. These are all things that drive innovation. And, and we need that. We need to create a climate where people um, care and want to contribute. Um, and where, where, you know, if they, if they work at something, they can see the merits of that, where there's incentive to come up with new ideas. We need that. We need to incorporate that into our economic model. Absolutely. But we're moving into a world that is like, like we talk about democratic socialism and capitalism and, and all of that, but we're actually, we're, we're moving into a world that nobody actually really knows the terrain of what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Like with the technological revolution, we don't actually have a, a really firm grip on, on, you know, how many jobs are going to be autonomized, how many people are going to be put out of work by automation. Um, you know, what it's going to, what it's going to mean to like, what recreation is going to mean? Like, is it going to mean just putting on a headset and disappearing? There's, there's so many, the world is moving at a rate um, that's just on, a up, on an upward trend, like, like unfathomably. Mm -hmm. So what I'm actually really interested in seeing is electing people who, who have the capacity at least to 
to grasp at some of these things that we're up against, that some of these futures that we're moving towards. America just elected the oldest president it's ever had in its history. Joe Biden is not capable of anticipating the future. Um, you know, we need adaptive government and we probably need to get less attached to our ideas of like capitalism, democracy, socialism, uh, communism, whatever it is, and really start saying, okay, the world is changing fast and we've got some crazy needs that need, need to be met here or it's, you know, or it's going to crumble. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think we just, we need to entertain the radical avenues right now. And we just need to at least walk, walk down them and like look into the potential there. Um, and we need to move cautiously as well. But, um, you know, time is running thin. <laughs> I agree with that. It's, it's, and I think, I think it's interesting because I, um, I, and I hope, I hope I made it clear. Maybe I didn't make it as clear. I, like the Swedish system with higher taxes, where the higher taxes allow them to have better, better education systems, better social programs, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm 100% for that. I joined, I somehow started getting emails the other day. I can't remember if it's a petition I signed earlier in the year or something where there's people in Canada actually lobbying to have like CERB payments be consistent that they don't stop once this is done, that people can, who need it, can rely on a steady income coming in to be able to provide for them. Um, and that's a question I had, I had an uh, discussion with a really good friend of mine. And she said, well, how do you feel about UBI basically like universal basic income? Mm -hmm. And that's one I'm probably for. I would, I would definitely really want to understand more the intricacies of how that like the financials of how to make that exist in a world, like at least in Canada, I don't know our population, but it's a fraction of what they have in the States. Um, and I, I do have this curiosity, like when you look back in history of bigger and bigger, bigger populations, they tend to at some point disintegrate into smaller countries. Like if you look at what the USSR used to be, it's now Russia and then a whole gambit of a ton of smaller countries. And I do sometimes wonder if that's, a place where Canada and the States is headed being these really, really, really vast land masses. Canada, not so much. We don't have the population to kind of meet, dictate that break up so much, except that we take up so much space with such a small amount of people that I, I have wondered if perhaps that's a direction that is inevitable. I don't, I don't know. Um, particularly in the States where they have like millions of people across such a diverse landmass, across such a diverse ideal spectrum that if just breaking up into smaller sections isn't actually the better idea because I have also wondered, like we, we keep trying, and I do think, I think some of what you're calling for is like, we need to actually totally revolutionize how we even think of systems like stop kind of doing capitalism versus socialism, communism. Like it's like, we need to actually revolutionize our whole thought process to catch up to where we are and where we're, what we can project going forward. Um, and one of the things that I've actually thought of is instead of more of these top 
down solutions like government is a kind of a top-down imposed solution. I do believe we need some of that. Like runaway, run, run, runaway capitalism is not a good thing. This is what we have right now is complete runaway capitalism. I had a friend say a few years ago, he called it corporatism. We're not actually in capitalism because capitalism allows things to fail. And like the, the bailout of the banks in 2008 didn't allow the banks to fail. That's no longer capitalism because capitalism does let when people make a wrong decision and takes their business into a wrong place, it fails. Yeah. And so he actually called it corporatism, that which is failing us more than capitalism. And I found that distinction to be kind of interesting. Mm. Um, but, but I do agree with you that we need to have more of a revolutionized way. But part of what I think that has to be is that we within like, like even in just like Calgary population, you know, like I, I'm, I'm, I live in Calgary we within our own population need to focus on helping our own population because only people within Calgary are going to have any idea of what Calgarians need. Am I going to truly know what people in Victoria or in, I don't know exactly where you're living now, need to, to, um, to live the best life for those people? I don't know. And then we're also, and then we're vying for a government and on Ottawa, to regulate a system across all of Canada to support our needs the most. It's like, I just don't know even that that concept of like this big federation is really what's helping anybody. Yeah. So let's say you broke down each province into, into its own country. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it adds a whole bunch of complication. Right. It adds a whole bunch of layers of bureaucracy for trade to happen between those nations, for travel to happen between those nations. Um, it's It does add another layer of, yeah. of difficulty. And um, yeah, I personally, I don't feel that there's a compelling case to be made for dividing ourselves up further. I mean, you also have different levels of government, right? You've got the mm -hmm. federal government, which, which oversees Canada as a whole, you've got the provincial governments mm -hmm. and you've got mu municipal governments and the role of the municipal government is to take care of the city. Um, and so it's like, there's a function for that. Um, like, like how small do we want to break it down? Do we want everyone to have a vote? Well, I mean, we could do that too. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I think within the world that we live in right now, it's so complex. And that day-to-day -day people who are just trying to live their lives, they don't have the time and interest to, to study these things deeply mm -hmm. and to cast a vote for every issue. Um, I think people like you and myself happen to have an interest in this based on whatever genetic and environmental variants uh, affected our lives and led us to the places that we're at. But I think it's unfair to expect that that everyone else or or even the majority of other people will have the the interest or the willingness to be involved in something like that and mm -hmm. so it's like that's why we elect people at these different levels you know we elect our mean our our counselors for our city you know we elect our mlas for our province and we elect our mps for the country and it's like i don't want to think about these things you sound like you represent me more than anyone else i'm going to vote for you mm -hmm. yeah um, I guess, I guess I agree. I don't know that necessarily breaking down into different countries is the answer. I think it's more distributing 
distributing the power back, like, and I don't know, this is like, these are thoughts that have only recently been coming to. So it's not like a fully developed idea at all. Um, But like, like the city of Calgary, and then there's like, so there's the city of Calgary, but then there's like Rocky View County that kind of looks after the surrounding perimeter around Calgary. It's like, those only get a certain amount of income from, from like, like their services. Whereas if they actually had more power or more resources to better look after their people that maybe is redistributed through the federal government. Um, I, that's just a curiosity I have of in, in changing the dynamics of how the powers are mm-hmm. at play, um, mm-hmm. that it would maybe incentivize more grassroots businesses maybe, or made it that grassroots businesses could get better funding to really support support the populations that they are within that I I guess that's just a curiosity I have is like perhaps if that could become a solution um instead of all of these top-down kind of kind of things like having more people like that that's what I'm trying like I'm part of a couple businesses right now in Calgary that are focusing on trying to support Calgary Calgary and area and like right now everything's kind of online so then you do open it up to people who are online but it is like we're trying to to do stuff within the Calgary area because that's that's where we're from. And it's not to say like where other people are from, I don't wanna also support them. And like, that's not what I mean, but I think there can be sometimes an overlooking of over there, over there, over there, when like homelessness in Calgary is like skyrocketed and stuff, you know? Like let's fix here where we are first, you know? Um, so I think it's more that, because I, I agree, I don't think that necessarily breaking down into s- smaller countries is the answer, just a transfer of power into the smaller places have more resources to better support them, I think is more what yeah. I'd be curious about. Yeah, so I think there's a case that can be made for allocating more of the financial resources to smaller levels of government, municipal, provincial, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a case to be made against it as well. And yeah. um you know, let's say the province takes care of healthcare, right? Yeah. And and they allocate the money. Well, if you hand that over to a municipality and all the municipalities that exist within Alberta, we'll say, um, now you've got, you've got dozens of individual groups trying to form hospitals and manage them. So you've just taken the bureaucracy and you've, you know, right. quadrupled it or, or greater. Um, and so there's a degree of efficiency that takes place when you have government with larger um, sweeping sweeping power, right? It's like you've got one group managing that body that um, you're not you're wasting less money on the management, essentially. Mm. And maybe it's less specific to your community. Um, and so then you know that's that's the that's the trade-off. Um, I want to pick up on one point that you made about um, let's take care of here first. Um, because I've been thinking about that a little bit myself recently. Um, and so maybe if you don't mind, just define what you mean by let's take care of here first. Man, so it, stem, it, it stems from the idea of like basically even me as the individual, me as the one human Christine Blanken, I... The level that I can show up for the world is dependent on the level that I show up for myself. Mm-hmm. And so if I 
that needs to be no matter what, first and foremost, the first thing that I look after is how can I make sure my mental state is good. I'm well-fed. I'm doing the most that I can first for myself so mm. that I actually am fueled and have the ability to serve in the world in the way that I want to. So that's number yeah. one. The next step after that for me personally is, and I didn't used to be this way. I went traveling a lot. I was super interested in all of the world. And this is only a recent thing that I've decided is like, we're born where we're born for a reason. We're born in the place and time. Like I, that's a more spiritual belief. It, um, it's just a way that I, I guess, find meaning in life. Um, but um, I, like Jesse and I made a choice to buy a house in Calgary, which I never thought that I would do. Um, partially because then I'm around family um, when we start to have kids and we can have like the support of my parents and his mom and dad when he comes and stuff. But then, then it becomes, so I, I've now looked after me to the point that I have the resources to be able to look after those around me. Then I have to spread out to what amount of human beings do I personally have the ability to influence, to look after, to spend energy on, invest my time into to help them become the best versions of themselves and their idea of what that's going to look like, not imposed from me, but help them foster their best selves as well. Yeah. And then from there, that can trickle out. And I personally think that's kind of how it has to be for pretty much everybody is, is kind of that. And then I can have a podcast like this that can more nationally globally go around and like recreate ideas. So that's one way that I'm looking to have more global discussions beyond just my little pocket of human beings. And the internet totally lets us do that. We can connect with anybody. I had a podcast with a friend I met when I was in New Zealand, like it was super awesome. We hadn't reconnected in a long time. So we do have, that's a benefit of technology that we have these interconnected ways that we can influence greater and greater amounts of people. But um, like last year, I was going to start a total online business and in starting to do a total, like do an online business. I just realized I didn't want to, it, 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 the, the human element was kind of lacking in a way. Um, I, I started to realize how much I actually need and thrive on connection, like actual in-person connection. Um, and it started to get me thinking of like, well, then I need to start supporting the people around me in a better way and showing up more consistently for those around me. So then, yeah, that becomes my little pocket of community that then we can infiltrate other little pockets of community within Calgary. And then <clears throat> looking after like some of the targetings that we, some of the people that I'm looking at in terms of like avatars or who you want to serve are even people higher up in um, like more corporate people to kind of help them understand um, spirituality and looking after yourself instead of just that pursuit of money and stuff that tends to rule their lives in a way that doesn't benefit them either and kind of help them learn how to look after themselves. And then when people learn how to look after themselves, I, and actually not look after themselves, not narcissistically go for their goals. That's not necessarily looking after themselves, like literally looking after their well-being, their whole existence. I find then people, people who do that tend to have a natural desire to do that and help other people learn how to do that too. Um, 
And I, that's just personally how I see it is like, we have to, I have to first look after me, then look after those closest to me. And then I can keep widening my circle as it goes. But if I'm trying to help people in India and, and Southern Texas and all this, and I haven't done anything for the people in my life who I actually might see day to day, I think it's just a miss. it's a misuse of time for me personally. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. Thanks for defining it so clearly. Um, So I agree with a lot of what you're saying. um, And I certainly believe that we're not capable of offering up much to the world if if we're not in integrity with ourselves and taking care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I also hear this, I hear this, let's take care of us. I'll, let's take care of ourselves first. I hear that a lot in like, um, in political discussion. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm a little bit cautious around that sentiment because I do think people need to work more at the community level. I think we're, I think it's really easy to get infatuated with um, the problems of America, for example, or, uh, you know, whatever, wherever the darkness is most prominent in the world. I think it's easy to get infatuated with places that in, aren't in our environmental area. Um, but also, I think um, that if we, if, we, if, we, if we say something to the effect of we won't help anyone else until we've completely figured out everything here from the small scales up, um, then, then you've just got people who are on the far outskirts who are just fucked Mm -hmm. and their kids and their generations are going to be equally as screwed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I think there needs to be, I think there's a balance that needs to be struck of take care of ourselves, work in your community, you know, be, be effective in the ways that you can with the people, you know, Um, but also be cognizant of, of the fact that, you know, there's, um, there's children mining precious metal metals for the materials in our technology, yeah. um, and, and that we should we should care enough to to at least declare publicly and call our our institute on our institutions and our corporations and our governments to um, to not allow that or to not practice that anymore. Um, so yeah, there's just a balance there. I think that needs to be struck. And and I and I also believe that some people are more geared towards community-oriented work, mm-hmm. and that some people like to think in broader terms. Um, you know, we all have these these degrees of of thinking that we tend to settle on. We can get really occupied with ourselves. We can get really occupied with our family. We can get really occupied with um, you know our country. We can get really occupied with the world. We can get really occupied with the universe. And um, these are all different, yeah, they're just different levels of perceiving reality. Um, personally, like I want to dance between those levels and I want to and I want to hold them in some kind of container that um, that recognizes the value of each, and I want to like live and work in 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 those to varying degrees. but but I think people are geared for different levels, and we mm-hmm. need to respect and support people who are working at those different levels. Mm-hmm. I would, I would totally agree with that. Um, I'm just going to kind of poke a little bit at what you said. Please um, poke. 
at um, the like the kids who are mining uh, cobalt, I believe is the actual thing that they're mining. That is one of the predominant things that are needed in um, in phones. And I haven't done a huge deep dive into it. I've done a very, very small deep dive into it because I wanted to figure out like, what are the solutions to perhaps do that? And there is an article I came across that basically said the obvious, the most obvious solution that might be posed is to put sanctions on the countries or to put pressure on the countries to not use child labor or to not, to only take, um, put pressure on the companies to only accept um, cobalt from places that followed ethical guidelines. And the writer of the article that I said, it said, on one hand, that seems really, really awesome. But what we have to understand, and it's hard for us in a Western civilized culture, um, in a culture in the way that we are, is those children are working because it's the only way that that family can survive. Mm -hmm. And so if we all of a sudden put sanctions that the children can't work, um, all we're doing is harming that family. All that ends up doing is harm that family. And so I'm not saying that we don't figure out another solution. I'm saying that what that's one that is the most obvious one that people might say to do. And it never, it doesn't tend to have the solution that we want to have. Um, and other solutions of like going into there and like teaching them or like doing things sometimes to me, that also has the same error as like, um, colonialization that we go in with our but own views yeah, except that mining cobalt isn't a traditional part of their lifestyle for thousands of years. No, I get that. It's something that, yeah, it's something that that they fell into <clears throat> based on the corporate model that's taken over the world that was designed by Europeans. Yeah. Essentially. Um, so yeah. Is, yeah. So these things all of these matters are complex and you right. can't just, you can't just write legislation and you can't just sign a petition and call it a day. Right. Um, yeah. Is it, if we stop that mining, you know, are those kids going to be compromised? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's why it needs to be holistic in our approach. Right. Um, and we need to ask ourselves, okay, so if these children aren't mining and not supporting their families, they're not going to eat. So are we okay with that? Probably not. Are we okay with children mining cobalt? Mm, I'm not okay with that. Yeah, I, I don't feel good with that. Um, so it, it there needs to be pressure not only to for this for children not to be working in the mines, but pressure for there to be a meaningful solution for these people. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. So that do you believe that's pressure on the companies that are? paying for it? Like, is that where the pressure needs to be or pressure on the government, the local governments? Um, yeah, I think definitely on the companies. Okay. And I think um, definitely like, you know, as Canadians demanding that our government doesn't, um, doesn't support the practices um, or, or they're investing in meaningful solu economic solutions for these people. Um yeah, governments and corporations, essentially.
It's interesting because like from a kind of capitalist idea, a way that we as civilization could put pressure on it is to not buy the phones. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that sounds great in theory and it just doesn't work. It just right. does not work. Yeah. Right. Um, we're, we're, we're consumerists through and through we're, we're addicted to our shit and it's great that people do that. And I fully support people who choose not to buy technology or use recycled technology or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's not, you can't, you can't write a story that's compelling enough to the average Westerner mm-hmm. that's going to make them drop their phone. Right. I 100% agree. Yeah. But I think again, like that's the coming back to the idea of like collective, collective work versus individual work. Like some of that I think is, but, but then I agree with you. I was going to say is like the work of the individual, but then so many of the individuals are just living day to day to look after their lives. Like they, they themselves don't have the time, effort, interest to learn about all these things. So then, so then that comes to with all these people who don't have the right, the enough interest to learn about these things, um, where does the pressure come from? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, this is why we need to, I mean, there's, there's organizations that already exist that are doing this work. Yeah. And basically it's the response, you know, it's, then it becomes a responsibility of the citizenry to throw their support behind these people. It's like, we don't need to set up new institutions to, to fight for human rights. They exist. We just mm-hmm. need to support them. Fair. And you can, you can do that by sending money. You can do that by um, signing petitions. You can do that by writing a letter to your MP. Mm-hmm. However, you can do that by choosing not to buy the phone. Um, but yeah, we need some collective weight thrown behind it, mm-hmm. behind the th- groups that already exist doing this work. So... So I kind of outlined my path of how I think it comes to like me working outward. What is your view? I think it's, I think it's diff. I mean, yes, you got to take care of your health if you want to operate in the world in a meaningful way, bottom mm-hmm. line. I totally mm-hmm. agree with that. Um, I, but again, I would just return to this idea of, you know, we all have, we all have different enthusiasms. We all have different interests and it's, we can't say, well, we all need to work at a grassroots level and move up. Mm-hmm. it's good for people to do that who are enthusiastic about that. And it's good for people who have other interests at working at different levels of government or nonprofits or business or, or whatever it is that they're involved in podcasting. Um, we need people, we need people at all different levels. Yeah. Um, you're going to be most effective wherever your enthusiasm lies. Right. Um, because enthusiasm is a fuel. Um, so yeah, know yourself well enough to understand what it is you're excited about and, you know, how you can contribute meaningfully and then go with that. Yeah. It's yeah, interesting. Cause... No, keep. I was just going to say, don't torture yourself with this notion that you need to follow someone else's model of how to live a meaningful life. Right. Like know yourself well enough to, to live that well. So with that idea, because I, I think that's, I think that's like the responsibility that I've just kind of taken on. And like the, the mission that I see is trying to inspire as many people to go after the thing it is that they want. Like that's, that's just a thing that I want to do is like, like 
doing a podcast is something I want to do. Um, helping people at a grassroots level, doing the work that I'm doing. It's the stuff I want to do. And within the work I'm doing, part of that is to inspire people to actually ask themselves what it is that they want to do to inspire other people to then maybe be the ones to be like, you know what, I really want to go volunteer in Africa for the rest of my life and help build that up. That's what inspires me since I've done my internal work to fuel, figure out what my heart is longing for. Mm -hmm. Cool. Then I've actually helped inspire that person to go do external work. You know what I mean? Like that, that's where I see for my personal self, it's trickle out effect, but, um, because what I think at the base, base, baseline level, and it comes back to that idea of the individual, we need more and more and more individuals who are better supported 100% and who are doing the work to figure out what fuels them, what lights their being up. And, and ironically, I think our phones take directly take away from that. So if everyone actually didn't buy phones, it would probably actually do all that. And I'm not saying not to do that. I love my phone. I'm not going to be a person who doesn't buy my phone. Um, I've definitely thought about it. I've definitely thought of getting rid of my phone because of the downfalls that I do see and the Mm -hmm. kind of time suck that it can become if you don't set proper boundaries for oneself um, around it. But, but I think, I think you and I basically probably agree on the very same thing that it's, we need everybody to be working on themselves so that they can be doing the thing that they want to do in the world. And if everyone, and then that's going to trickle down and, and layered hit all the different layers, because naturally we're going to be interested in the different layers. Yeah. And I also just want to point out this idea of, I I think it's a pretty popular notion right now that we all need to take care of ourselves. And I Mm -hmm. agree with that largely because, you know, change is, change is the most impactful when it comes from the self. Um, but at the same time, I think there's this overemphasis in our culture of individualism um, mm-hmm. and individualism, individualistic well-being. Um, I think we actually have a social responsibi- responsibility to, to be adaptive and aware to the people that are in our lives and how they're doing and reach out to them meaningfully and try and support them. Um, you know, this generation is all about the individual, mm-hmm. like, like hyper individualism. Mm-hmm. And the fact is we've been social creatures for millions of years and it's only a recent phenomenon that we're so obsessed with the self. Um, Work on the self, do the self, yes, take care of the self, but we also have a pretty important social responsibility. And there are some people who, um, who, you know, you say, well, just do self work, but it's like a lot of people just don't know what that means or where to begin. Yes. And so how can we, how can the people who are aware enough show up for those people as well? you know? Um, so let's, let's, yeah, let's help each other as well. A hundred percent. Um, I had a conversation last week with, um, with a woman named Tarzi McLean, and we were basically talking about that. She's a mental health, um, provider and she works both at the system level to kind of help work within the system to change it. And she has a personal practice so that she gets to do kind of both aspects of working collectively and with the individual. Um, And one of the things that we both kind of identified as the hardest place is how how to help people know what's out there, for one, for help. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think oftentimes people want help, but don't know the right questions to ask, don't know the right people to go to, don't know those kind of things. So like, how can we actually educate better on what's available? 
And then how can those people actually show up in a way that, that, that is helping the individual? Because I think sometimes, and I, I've done this in my life before, um, we kind of touched on it earlier. I thought I had the answers for other people when I might have tools, but that individual is going to have the answers for themselves when they are better supported to learn how to look and ask inwardly for those answers. And some people, it is more external. Like some people aren't inward focusers. They need to talk it out or they need to go just do something and let the something inspire them. Like there's so many ways in which um, we as humans interact with the world around us that it's like hard, especially in with the internet that's telling us every which way to do something, which way is right for us. Um, how, how do you feel you would go about helping somebody learn how to know what is right for them? If that you, depends on, that depends on a million factors. Like who's the somebody, what is my relationship to them? Have they approached yeah. me? Am I trying to approach them? So, I mean, if you could, Give me this, some more parameters. I could, I could maybe answer that. For sure. This is more like someone has come to you specifically mm -hmm. ser searching for help. You have a relationship with them of some kind, or you're um, seen in a way that they look to you as an authority, whether or not you have a super close relationship or maybe a little bit distance, but they see you as an authority to potentially help them. And they've come to you asking for it. Gotcha. Um, I think one of the best things that we can gift people is, uh, listening. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think that's where the work begins when someone, um, hears their own voice for long enough and, and lays out their thought. It's like the clarity already starts to emerge. Mm -hmm. So I think we can really help people by listening and then just being really, really responsive and adaptive to what that specific person is saying, like, what's the underlying message there? And then there's always an, a, a temptation to say, well, do this, do that. And you're good, you know, mm -hmm. go to yoga, see this counselor, eat well, and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. um, but um, just under, just, just listening for the message underneath the superficialities of what they're expressing. Um, and then, and then reaching, reaching into that. And then also just understanding your own personal limitations as a being and like what you can offer this person and understanding when it's your time to say, okay, um, that really sounds like this person could help you or this person mm -hmm. could help you. Um, yeah. So that's what, that's what I see as being helpful. Yeah. I would, I would totally agree with you. Um, that actually kind of takes me to, you had posted something. It was like a quick meme that was like psychedelics or psychological work. Um, and basically saying like psychedelics are like the, ooh, shiny object, I'm gonna go keep doing that. Um, when basically one of the th things I'm getting into is um, helping people integrate psycho uh, psychedelic experiences, actually integrate the insights, the knowledge, the aha moments, the change of perspective into one's everyday life mm -hmm. so that it doesn't just become the peak experience and then they go back into living going back down their tunnel of misery that started them to want to take the peak experience. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, and I just wonder first, yeah. What's your thoughts on kind of that? Like when you posted that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, very similar to you. Um, I mean, 
I think psychedelics are, I think they're great for a lot of, they, I think they work well for a lot of people. I don't think they work well for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm definitely don't advocate just anyone going out and doing it without some study 100%. or some kind of um, facilitation. Um, they've certainly been a powerful force in my life. Um, and, and I just think sometimes they tend to fall into this, um, into the new age spirituality in a way that's just like, doesn't, I mean, it's like, can you only be a Christian when you're in a church or right. can you be a Christian when you go home too? It's like, you know, are you enlightened just when you take the psychedelic or is it having meaningful impact in your life? Right. Um, and I am concerned about the tendency for those things to, 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 for some people to take, to take over as the, as the go-to. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's all about integration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, I'd be really curious to, uh, another time just to like hear about that work and and the process of integrating the experience that you're studying yeah um it's um i i think of life so i can, I can t- touch on it a little bit i think yeah. of life as basically a collection of tools like somewhat it's a collection of how many tools do i have in my toolkit to pull on when i need it so knowing when I need to go take a nap because I'm just overwhelmed. That's a tool to know myself by knowing when I need to practice yoga, knowing when yoga isn't serving me and I actually need to strengthen my body in a different way. Um, that's actually been a huge part of my journey lately. Um, a few years ago, I probably would have said everyone just needs to do yoga and the life would be fine because I was this kind of person who believed that there was one answer for things. Um, Mm -hmm. don't believe that at all anymore. Um, I think yoga is phenomenal and I think yoga can be very, very beneficial. Um, I've also hurt myself in yoga multiple times from not, um, it's not even not listening because I realized recently I'm dealing with an injury, but, um, it, I would hurt after. So I'm listening in yoga, but I'm just not doing what my body needs. So it's like, it's having to slow down to ask again what the body is needing. So part of the integration work that we are working on is, um, I don't, I like you, I don't believe psychedelics should be done for most people without some form of facilitation, or if you're going to do it by yourself at home, cause that's, what's called to you that you aren't then working with, um, a transformational coach an integration facilitator, a, psychotherapist, a someone who is going to help you, like you said, talk it out, um, hear your own voice and really work on bringing those things into one's life. I, I, I think a lot of times, otherwise it's just kind of a peak experience that just gets left that just kind of falters. Like, and, and I, and I just don't, I don't think that that's going to as we're moving to more of potential decriminalization, um, legalization, there's lots of amazing discussions on that coming forth. Um, I really do hope that it's tied with more education on the the pairing of psycho- psychotherapy in some kind of way. So that doesn't necessarily mean you have to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. There's lots of different people who can provide that. Um, so some of the work that we're doing is with um, Transformational Life Coach. So um, we have that at the center, a Transformational Life Coach who meets with people and helps them kind of 
transform the ways in which they're identifying their own belief structures or identifying themselves. They are interacting in the world. They are seeing maybe friendships that are not serving them. Um, we, we can get overly attached to other humans in a way that isn't actually good for our own self. Um, and just kind of helping navigate all the sectors of life. And then something I'm going to be doing is teaching yoga because it is what I do, but not from a, here's a set of sequences you do, but here's a philosophy of how to approach life in a way um, that can get you thinking. Like the in yoga, the first um, three aspects are yamas, niyamas, and then it's asana. And asana is what is focused on in the Western world, asana being the poses. But the yamas mm -hmm. are ethical principles and the niyamas are like self-care principles. How do, how do I look out for myself and how do I look out for the world? And so teaching, I will be teaching basically a personalized program for people um, based on physically in their body, what poses are gonna just help them relieve some tension in their body. Um, but also focused on like the very first principle is non-harming. And so we'll have a discussion. What does non-harming mean? What does that mean for yourself? What does that mean in showing up for your family? What does that mean in, um, in how we work in showing up in the world? And is it possible to not harm a single thing ever? I don't think so. I just don't like, like it just isn't like people who think veganism is a way to like eat so that you're not harming things. Well, animals are killed in monocropping. Like it's, it's to, to live in a life that no harm is ever done period isn't realistic, but it's how can we bring that principle of non-harming into one's life to work with it in a functional way, um, as a principle. So that's, um, that's basically how I'm going to be working with people personally is through the lens of yoga, um, and breathing and meditation, um, and working with like the ethical and moral principles of, a functioning better in society for oneself and in um, relationship with others. Wow. E yeah. Exciting work. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's um, long time, long time percolated thoughts that have finally manifested in how I actually want to teach yoga. So, wow. So yeah. So anyway, that's kind of the work, I guess that I'm kind of planning to bring forth in the world along with the podcast, which is just encouraging um, discussion. So then I guess what I kind of wanted to end on is what spawned this conversation with you and I, as you asked me, um, what is the path forward that I see for unification and like more the collective path. Um, and there was a few things that I mentioned that, um, I would maybe just like us to kind of have a little back and forth on and what we can see, um, and again, most of them, I come back to as much as it's collective work, it does start at the individual level. So that's, it's how I just think of things. I don't know how a collective moves to do something without the individual pieces of the puzzle being the ones to actually do the work. Um, but so one of the first things that I think is, it's just a change in how we view things being, um, and I said being for things rather than against things. Mm. And it comes from the idea of like, like I've seen this year, you're either racist or you're anti-racist. And it's like, um, no, you could also be for unification or be for 
Um, I know Coleman Hughes, I talk about him a bit on this podcast because I want everyone to look into him. Um, he is writing a book in, in defense of colorblindness, like the, the idea of colorblindness and it's being, so he's for an ideal rather than being against a thing we don't want to see, because for me, what this view comes from is when you're against the thing you don't want, you're still giving that thing more power. Being anti-racist, you're actually still giving racism more power. Whereas if we move for things that we want to see, and sometimes it's harder work to know exactly what we're for rather than what we're against. Um, it's just a cho choice point that actually changes our the way in which we're even um, thinking about and moving towards something, being for something, it's more of a positive outlooked, yes, um, kind of undertone. Whereas being against something is like, oh, this is bad. And it has like, it has that kind of undertone. So I'm curious of your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, it's like, what are you creating instead right. of what are you, instead of what are you fighting? Right. Um, yeah, I think I think Gandhi has a quote about that. I, mm -hmm. I don't know it off the top of my head, but um, yeah, it's uh, I, yeah. I mean, I think I agree. I think I think the energy changes around uh, around what you're thinking about and what you what you give yourself to. If if you ask yourself what you're building rather than what you're tearing down, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, and I think it's. I think it's a more uplifting energy. I think it's a more motivational energy to um, to work for things rather than against things. I mean, at the same time, I think there's probably certain institutions and, and modes of thinking um, and, and, and ways that we exist in contemporary society that need interruption and mm -hmm. maybe need to be dismantled. Mm -hmm. um, but I think those should be part of a greater backdrop of what are we trying to create here? Right. Um, yeah, so I would say I agree with that. Cool. Um, the next one is a, this, and this one I think is collectively harder, um, is that we have to understand that nuance is, is what makes up life. That, um, that I, I've just seen like this whole, and it, I think it comes back to even what you were saying when we over, when we get kind of self, overly self-focused, we also overly identify um, with certain parts of ourselves, And there's been this whole, with the whole idea of intersectionality um, concept, and, I, and I'm not well-versed in it. I didn't study sociology at all. So if I get it wrong for people who have, um, this is my basic knowledge, but it's that we basically created black people, white people, Latinos, um, gays, straights, bisexuals, non-binaries. And there's now like overarching amount of terms for people that then speak to our identity um, in a way that I actually think is more limiting than powerful um, because like even sexuality I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to say it in a way that, that I, that it's not coming to me in a very seamless manner in this moment. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do find there has been this over focus on what makes us different. Um, but then typecast it into very, very, very broad boxes as if 
a gay black person, all gay black people are then going to have the same agreement on something like that. These little boxes then make us more similar rather than different when I might actually have much more in common with somebody of a different color and sexuality than me than I do of somebody who's white and dating another straight white guy. You know what I mean? Like it just, it's kind of a false idea that these boxes make us more similar than they do different when the nuances of thought and people is so vast that I just, I, I kind of see it. It just isn't benefiting us to do this. Yeah. So, um, uh, this is an interesting one. I think about this. Yeah, I, I think about this. Um, so I agree with the general notion that, that, uh, nuance is underappreciated, understudied and underpracticed in the modern world. Mm -hmm. Um, and that people are dynamic and we can't, it's, it's, it's silly to think that we can summarize a person's beliefs um, just based on their demographics that mm -hmm. they fall into. Um, also, I think that um, these categories of uh, black, white, Latino, gay, straight, um, whatever it might be, are relevant and valid mm -hmm. because um, people have different experiences and sometimes based on on who you are and and the and the makeup of who you are you have a different experience in the world and mm -hmm. you have a different history in the world mm -hmm. and people generally might treat you differently in the world um and so those things I think they do impact a person's experience. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I listened to a little bit of Coleman Hughes and one of the things that he said with his colorblindness book, it, it was not that, it was not that he, he wants us to aspire to not seeing color. Right. It's, it's that, um, you know, he wants to move towards emergence of like, who, who is the person here um, and not the, the skin tone or, or whatever it is. It's like, what is this person doing? What are their, um, credentials? What are their interests? What are they offering? Um, so I, I think we need to recognize these things, mm -hmm. different races, different sexual orientations, mm -hmm. um, different political views, whatever it might be. And we need to know that they do have impacts in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, but we need to politicize them less. Yes. Um, and we need to recognize that that may be part of someone's particular construct, but not that it puts them into a certain, uh, political group or, um, or, or, or any kind of non-human group, like mm -hmm. any kind of constructed category, like politics or, or whatever it might be. Um, so and 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 people there i mean culture is just such a beautiful example of the fact that people are different mm -hmm. and and i i don't want to be someone i'm very cautious about being someone who says we're just all the same treat everyone equal it's all good i want to say mm -hmm. hang on a minute you guys yeah. are doing something really different over there and i'm curious about that and like yeah. let's explore that and tell me why you feel that way 
and let's get excited about the differences. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing something that's really weird and that is maybe destructive, like maybe we should talk about that. Um, so I'm all for pointing out our differences, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but doing it, in, but doing it in a way of honoring and, um, yeah. and just realistically, we are different. Thank you for putting it very eloquently. That's, that's exactly the view I have. Like I, what makes us different is beautiful and amazing. And it, what's, it's what allows me to want to work with individuals and other people to want to go and help the collective. Like we were talking about earlier, like our, our differences are amazing, but over politicizing, I think that was exactly the right terminology to use our differences. Um, I just don't see, I don't know that that is going to be the biggest benefit to people overall that I think they're, they're kind of potentially thinking it's going to be. Um, and over, over identifying oneself with a group they think they're potentially a part of, I think can be a bit more, um, exclusionary than inclusive and unifying. Um, so that's, that's just a, a new, a more nuanced thing we have to, I think, try to, try to look at in culture. Um, The other thing that I 100% think we need more of is dialogue. Um, Back in 2016, when Trump was elected, I I had just gotten back from India shortly after, yeah, I just gotten back from India. And um, right before India, I was down in Seattle at a dance camp. So I had had a bunch of these new people on my Facebook that I didn't really know that were from the States. And there is an almost unanimous dialogue of, if you voted for Trump, I'm never talking to you again. No more conversation, no more this. And I just remember having this visceral reaction through my body that was like, this is not good. No more dialogue is not the answer. Um, And And more, so I I firmly believe one of the most things that we can collectively do is talk more with people and specifically talk more with people that you don't agree with. Talk more and, and, and talk from a place of curiosity and wanting to understand them. Just, just, and it doesn't mean you agree later. It doesn't mean that you even understand them later. It doesn't mean that it makes sense, but that you, and I, and I, I do try to do this on a, on a pretty consistent basis, um, try to understand people that don't, that I don't see eye to eye with, because that's how I will be able to expand my own viewpoints. It's how I can um, have more compassion for them, for where they have come from and their thought process that got them to that belief. Um, I actually started reading a book called How to Have Impossible Conversations. Um, And it was actually the first few pages were basically like, it felt like a a rule book to all the things I've done wrong (laughs) in conversing with people, which is really nice. It gave me tips and pointers of how to show up better in conversation. Um, But one of the things they said is, especially in the kind of climate we're in where everybody has different facts Everybody has different um, experts that they turn to. Um, 
we have to actually remove those as functions in our conversations because they are unproductive and that working to have a dialogue to understand the thought process that creates the belief and that like trying to understand that thought process and trying to get the other person to understand that thought process is the only way we're actually going to be able to find a mutual understanding or even perhaps change someone's view including my own that they might their thought process may be more linear and cohesive than mine then it means I then have to rethink my own thought process and be like oh I didn't even think of that 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 and and take a step back and and not come to it thinking that I'm right. Um, and I definitely think that book, um, it would probably be a bit triggering for some people, um, but it's a book worth looking at or just even books that do kind of challenge um, challenge what we already think um, is, is, is a big aspect that I think we need to be moving towards in culture. Yeah, so you and I could have this conversation and we could nod our heads and agree that nuance is key and that there needs to be more subtlety and there needs to be more of a recognition of the complexity of all of the issues that we face in the world right now. And we could nod our heads and just scream it to the moon. And, um, and you know, I have, I have friend groups that think along these lines too, um, which is helpful. Um, and, and the sticking point for me here is like, how do you make that a compelling story? to the average person. Because I think the average person is way more interested in, 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 in meeting, coming to an ideology, whether that's religious or political or whatever it might be, and, and just going with it and, and just running with it. It's like, mm. not everyone has, has the, again, it's like back to this, not everyone has the interest or the will to like think subjectively or to, to care enough to like research opinions that, you know, don't fall into the, into the group that they subscribe to. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm really curious about techniques about how we, how that can be made a compelling story or, or how we can at least start to start to poke at that. And I think, I think sometimes it, it, it comes in ways that is less, less about um, telling people that I mean, you could, you could tell, you could tell a group of people follow people on social media who have opposing uh, political views than your own. Um, so we could tell a group of people that they should follow people with different political views than their own, just to get a broader sense of, um, of things. Mm -hmm. And that would land with a small number of those people. And they might go online and they might do that. And it might work out for some of them. And for others, they would just get pissed off reading about things that they don't agree with. Mm -hmm. um, but even the average person, I think, in that scenario is just not interested in that. I mean, they've got their own interests and they've got their own life that they're dedicating lots of energy toward. And so it seems to me like we need to, there needs to be... <laughs> It's not me, but there needs to be a group of people or like someone who, who can make these things more compelling by like, you, you can tell someone to, you know, you can tell a leftist to ask themselves why someone growing up on a ranch in Montana might vote for Trump, but they're not going to do that work. Mm -hmm. Or you could create a little documentary about a really old man who grew up on a ranch in Montana and tell his life story. And someone 
who comes across a documentary would probably be a lot more compelled by, by a narrative mm -hmm. than by some intellectual practice that they have to undertake that adds more work to their life. Mm. You know, people are really moved by story. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like for the people who are sitting in the middle of this, of this yelling match, who are often really reason oriented and logic oriented, it's like we need to start examining our own biases and how we interpret the world and start to consider like, okay, so how can, how can we make, you know, the story of decency one that, one that moves people? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That was, an, yeah, I, I actually, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like just asking for more dialogue yeah, that makes a lot more sense. It's it, that all, basically touches on. We just have to we have to educate more. Like a, a documentary is kind of an education or a narrative of someone else's story. We have to spend more time helping people see a part of the world maybe that they just aren't aware of, um, instead of expecting them to go and do the work themselves. We can like different pockets of people can create different things. Um, to make it more available to see someone else's viewpoint. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, just make it <laughs> easier, I guess. You yeah. Know, people have enough that they're dealing with. Like, yeah. tell, it, tell them a good, a good story. It's interesting because that is um, part of this podcast. It is some of what I want to do is have people on who just have a story to tell, who just have, who want to say how, part of it is how they came to find healing. Because I find sometimes it's, it's just knowing even how to heal oneself. Um, it's like a lack of idea. So part of what I did want to do with this podcast is have different people talk about how they came to heal, whatever it is that they were afflicted with potentially to inspire somebody else to be like, Oh, I didn't even think that was possible. Maybe I'll try that or whatever it is, because just saying mm -hmm. diet is like, like all the things it's just too, there's way too much, almost too much information out there. But if you can actually hear someone's story that articulates point a to f that yeah. might mirror your story you'll be able to they might be able to think of a different path to take that might actually honor their healing so that was one of the things i the intentions i had for this podcast but um you're making me actually want to have it also in a political way like how, how did it come to be that you grew up and believe the things that you believe and like possibly tell those stories mm -hmm. um there's uh there's this really interesting little, um, this is a study that I heard secondhand on another podcast. And it's about the power, it's about the power of influencing people hmm. and, and how they feel about things. And it gives this example of like, you run an ad on television about a little girl who's starving in a third world country. And you look at the donation numbers that match um, following the ad, how many people donate. Um, so you've got a number, let's say, it's a million dollars. Um, then you run a very similar ad, but this time you tell the story of like her and her brother. So now there's two people and the donations are halved. They come in half. And then you say, it's like, it's like 10,000 people suffering like this. And you just say 10,000 people are starving in, the, in these conditions and the donations drop even further. 
So basically what that suggests is that our capacity for understanding and for caring about things is so tied to the one-on-one -on -one, mm. uh, uh, model of empathy. It's like sitting with another person or like hearing someone else's experience. Like that's what really captivates people is it's, a, it's our empathic, you know, it's our empathic part of our being, you know, statistics, they're, they're good for rational people, but they're not they're not very influential for, for most. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's so fascinating to me. Um, thank you for sharing that. And it, the, the first thought I had when you said, when, when they shared the thought of her and her brother, the first thought I had is in people are like, oh, well, she's not alone. So then she doesn't need as much help. Like that was the first thought that I had that people wouldn't donate as much because, oh, well, she's not alone. It's not so bad. Um, and then when there's lots of people, it's like, oh, okay, well, they're all suffering together might be like, that was like kind of the thought process just to outline mm. what went on in my head when you were telling that. Um, yeah. But it, it comes down to that, like that idea as well. And I think this is also why I kind of believe in like helping the influence that I can. And then the podcast is the way I'm planning to influence more people beyond my, like just the, the reach I can grab um, is, is that, a, is that capacity we have to feel empathy for other people like it we don't have endless capacity like like it, we don't like that there's it's there's tests on on that that it's basically like 154 people that we can kind of keep track of in mm -hmm. a in a way so it's like if I them am trying to think about the starving kids in Africa along with the problems in India along with racism in the States along with all this. And I'm trying to keep all of that in my scope of what I can potentially do. Um, it's actually going to be paralyzing and I'm not really going to do anything. Yes. And, and it, it's like that, that the paradox of choice almost in a way that the more choices we have, the less ability we have to actually make a decision on what to do. Um, mm. And so I find that so interesting that people would donate less when there's more people who need it um, or who are shown to need it. Like you'd think that it's like, oh man, we need to help all these people. But it's just like, I think what happens is we're like, I can't possibly help all those people. I'm just not going to do anything. Hmm. Um, yeah. 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 It's, a, it's an overwhelming and it's also just less, it, it plays less upon our, our empathy. Right. When it's just, it's so great. It's just like, you don't, you don't comprehend it on an emotional basis as much right. when it's right. in greater magnitude. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, and I then... just said you. I just said you don't comprehend as much. <laughs> Good catch. People, people tend not to comprehend it as, as much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't take it personally. It's all good. Yeah. Um, and then the last one we kind of did touch on is... And... Uh, I, I waver on this one a lot, but it's um, it's not thinking that like a mom and dad, a government figure, a thing external to us is going to have the answer to help us. Um, I, I I believe first. I believe at the end of the day, like I said at the beginning, it's my life, and I have to take personal responsibility for my life, and collectively. I think if every single individual really stood up and took personal responsibility for their life and went about 
how is it that I can work, just make that first effort towards making myself the best possible human being I can. I truly believe that that would revolutionize everything if, if every human did that. Um, I actually think some of the, the desiring for, um, kind of more structural change and government influence and kind of this top down thing that we, we went through of a lot, um, actually stems from the womb of our needs not being met when we were kids, the wound, the wound of that, sorry, not the womb, the wound of that, that exists for a lot of people and, and if they were to do and learn how to do the inner work of healing that wound, um, I'm curious if it would release some of the idea that something above us can look after us, something more, something top down, something at a federal level, whatever level can truly meet my needs. Um, and I, I am, I'm curious of that, that connection of that, um, and, and if people did actually find the right helper for them in whatever way that looks like. And there's so many that exist out there now. Um, and some are good and some aren't. And some aren't the right fit. And it is a matter of finding the person who can empathize and truly um, vibe with oneself to help me work through what I needed to work through. Um or they, them work through what they need to work through. Um, I, I fundamentally believe that that's, that's the first thing that every, everyone needs to do. So, and that that's a collective, everybody has to do that. So I'm curious how you, yeah. What you would say to that. Yeah. Um, I agree with the idea that if everyone did their personal work, we wouldn't need to be so concerned with government. I don't think everyone's going to do their personal work. Mm. Um, and, and the experiences that everyone have has had in their own lives are so vast and so mm -hmm. varied that um, I, I don't know that it's even appropriate to, to, to strive for everybody just doing their own work. Mm. Um, I think, again, there's this collective responsibility that we have in our community to, um, take care of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, and if someone's just so down and out, um, the likelihood of them, you know, at least starting that process on their own is, is pretty abysmal. Um, I mean, certainly change, fundamental change doesn't take place without there being a willingness on the individual part. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would agree with the idea that there's a lot of, um, there's probably some people that um, believe that by changing institutions or by government or, or things outside of themselves that their lives will be fixed or the world will be fixed. Um, I certainly think there's a demographic that it probably believes that. Um, I also, so think it's like we need to do our work, but we need to care about the systems and we need to hold our governments accountable mm -hmm. um, simultaneously. Um, so, yeah, again, it's just the process of like taking care of the self, taking care of the community and then holding 
those who are in positions of power responsible for the impacts that they're having on everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, I totally agree with you. Um, and I just want to clarify, I'm not saying people do their personal work alone. Um, personal work mm-hmm. basically can't be done alone. Things do need you. I, I don't know a single person who has figured themselves out alone. It, it's yes. In, yes. I just want to make that clear. Right. Yeah. I, I, I understand that. Um, mm-hmm. I think just for some people realizing that there's an opportunity yeah. for them to do the work, like doesn't even exist in their, in their, in their minds. Right. Um, it's just, it's just complete loss. Right. And so it's like, as a community, how, how do you support that person? Um, what would your answer be? How, how would you support somebody? Well, again, it just depends on a million circumstances. But right. if you talk about me specifically and someone in my life who I love, well, it's sitting down and having that listening conversation. Yeah. Um, if it's someone that. I don't know, then that becomes a lot more difficult. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, I think that's also knowing the scope of influence we can have and being okay with that. Like, I think, I think sometimes I, I was like this when I was much younger, I wanted to help the whole world. Like I wanted to help everybody. And that's idealistic yeah. and not available. It's not possible, you know? Um, so being kind of settling for the people that I can help and influence, um, and trusting that I'm doing the best that I very much can be and that people are doing the best that they can be. I think that's another thing. And the people that you, that you help and influence will in turn help and influence her. Right. The, the right. impact is great. Yeah. Right. Right, right, right. Um, any last thoughts? Uh, Just, uh, just that we live in a dynamic and complicated world with all kinds of people. We've got um, many layers of everything stacked up on top of each other. And it's a very messy, um, highly volatile, highly oppor- opportunistic time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of potential there and there's a lot of potential for uh, possibility and for catastrophe catastrophe yeah and so i think having conversations is one of the most promising ways that we can uh create meaningful change Mm -hmm. and um thank you for uh stepping into your your own for stepping into what you want to create in the world Mm -hmm. um yeah that's what we need people to do um and thanks for having me as a part of that conversation. Yeah, I'd, I would love to have you back for sure. And sure. Um, thank you for that. It's, it's a process to learn and want to take the, take the courage to create what we want in the world. And I, um, I by no means think that it's like a one day, hey, just do your work, then go do something. Like this has been a decade long of me figuring out who I am and who I want to be and what I want to bring in the world, um, like a, a dedicated decade. So wow. I want people to, to not, and what, when I say like, do your work, I'm, I'm, it, it's a long process and I'm not expecting anybody that it's like a quick, quick, quick thing. And I think yep. that's another thing with healing that people have to realize healing is a long process. Um, 
realizing who you are and what excites you and what you want to create in the world is a longer process than I think we give it credit for. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's a lifelong process. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so I do end the podcast just to, it kind of lightens things up a little bit. Um, yeah, and it's just, um, I enjoy them. Brene Brown does this. Some other podcasts that I have do this. Uh, I just do like a rapid seven. Um, okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah. And they just, they tend to end really fun. So, um, number one, authenticity is. So needed. So needed. (laughs) Awesome. Um, what best describes your learning style? Um, experiential. Cool. Yeah. Uh, a top book recommendation. Ooh, um, the girl with no name. Okay. It's, uh, it's about a, it's a true story of a young girl who is, uh, kidnapped at four years old, left in the jungle and lives with monkeys for four years. Wow. I'm going to get that book. That sounds amazing. Thank you for sharing. Um, a daily practice or habit. Uh, drinking two glasses of water first thing in the morning. <laughs> two, two glasses. Okay. Two cool. glasses. Interesting. Um, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? <laughs> um, it's funny that hyper intelligence is the first thing that comes to mind, nice. but uh, I, I just got to go with it. Okay, exactly. Um, Can you describe yourself in three words? Um, Steady, uh, thoughtful, and caring. Mm, I would most definitely agree. And your favorite obscure food choice? Hmm. I like pickle juice. (laughs) you're like i think you're the third person who has mentioned pickles in some variety okay awesome but specific pickle juice yeah just straight up love it (laughs) awesome thank you so much for being on the podcast and um yeah i look forward to having you back having more discussion like this um yeah it's been a pleasure thank you so much for the invitation Mm. Thanks so much for tuning into the Raw Podcast as part of the Radically Authentic Wholeness Project. We deeply appreciate you and would love to hear how you're enjoying the show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us an honest review, and share us with your friends and family. By doing this, you contribute to our mission of supporting individuals' pursuit of integrated wholeness and authentic self-expression. Are you interested in joining our community of curious comrades? please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash the raw project. Through the various tiers that outline our diverse offerings, you can explore your desired relationship with the project and our growing community. If you simply want to contribute without subscribing to the community, we appreciate your kind donations directly through our website, rawproject.org. 
We are not backed by any outside organization and our productions are purposefully raw and curated organically to create a listening experience that traverses my unending curiosity and insatiable desire to understand this divine experience we're all co-creating. I'm Christine Grace, and I wish you all a radtastic day ahead.